0: This episode I'm joined once again by Predrag Cicciowacki to discuss the life and work of Albert Schweitzer. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible and if you'd like to support the podcast or gain access to some exclusive content, please find links for the Patreon in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Predrag Cicciowacki, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Pleasure uh, to be here. We are going to be discussing the work of Albert Schweitzer um, who is in a way oddly primarily known, he's he's often primarily known for his uh, critique or Criticism or critique of the, the notion of the historical Jesus and of his theological writings. This is often why people might have heard his name. But when you delve deeper into his work, you realize here is, um, as you you kindly sent me your paper, Albert Schweitzer is an intellectual. Here is an intellectual writ large. You know, this person is just an intellectual in life, in spirit, in everything he's doing. He's uh, diving in with. A full force which we will see as we get to his biography but before we uh jump in with the work and life of schweitzer just let us know um you know how was it you came across his work and uh why, why did it interest you so much
1: i'll mention two episodes uh, from my personal life the first occurred when i was five years old and and schweitzer just died in 1965 uh and there was a the news on the radio and uh, my parents commented on it. There was a pause at at home. And uh, I grew up in a communist Yugoslavia, and usually when a communist leader would die, my parents would kind of cheer, especially my father, because they did not like communism. Uh, And that was the usual reaction to the news. They did not believe the, the propaganda and the lies that were usually served on the radio. But as a five-year-old child, I noticed for the first time that my parents were genuinely sad when they heard that somebody died and and they commented in style. I don't remember the exact words, Uh, but what a great man he was. and What a special human being he was. And that created an impression. Uh, I forgot about Schweitzer. And because his work is not mentioned in the academia, philosophers don't read him, don't think uh, of him as a philosopher. don't. Uh, but um, the second time I, I, I came across his work was um, around the turn of the century, between the 20th and the 21st century. Uh, my native country Yugoslavia fell apart And I was trying to understand why we live in such a crazy world and what is the alternative? What are some alternatives to violence and, and, and all the things that were happening there? And and that's what led me, on the one hand, to read uh, uh, more literature again, like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, trying to understand the, uh, where evil comes in our world. But I was also desperately looking for some kind of alternative way of looking at our civilization. And I came across Schweitzer, and it really fascinated me that there is something in his reverence for life that offers a different way of looking at the world uh so that that then i started reading him more closely and i uh, even had a chance at one point to go to africa and see where he lived over there and it became almost a personal relation now i almost feel like i discovered my older brother and uh and somebody who who can uh, as I said in that paper that you mentioned, provide a stimulus, even if not be a guide, uh, toward more positive outlook uh, yeah. at the world and and human life.
0: That idea of him, you know, finding your brother—it's—it's it's interesting actually. While read while when reading his his own work, despite tackling such heavy themes, I mean, he's he's a primarily a moral man. Everything is comes back to morality and and this very serious notion of a practical morality for Schweitzer but it's while reading him you you do it all these he- very heavy ideas of decay morality what is it to be good civilization these huge ideas he's an extremely amicable and warm writer and you feel like you're sat somewhere just having a a serious conversation but you know big things are at stake but there's no real there's not like this pressure you know things will come in time and we need to live them. But he's very warm. And I like what you said about him, uh, you know, like finding your brother. It's like finding a friend or something like that. It's great.
1: Something like that, yes. <laughs> um,
0: so I guess, you know, we we discussed this just before we started recording about this idea of the, the split between people often, this ongoing discussion of should we take into a, how How seriously should we take into account a philosopher's or an intellectual's biography when reviewing their work? and I, I, Or when reviewing their work? And I think most people now... I've moved away from the idea that there can ever be any serious split between the two. I mean, in thinkers maybe who are working on an extremely systematic abstract abstract sense Kant is one where I'd say actually yeah you could you could take his work apart but even then when you read uh, Manfred Kuhn's biography of Kant you realize actually little things come in and have definitely influenced Kant's work. Um but Schweizer is completely in the camp of someone where his biography and his work are almost one and the same completely intermingled so it's quite the task i will ask you to give us here but if we and if it's even possible but a brief overview of schweitzer's biography because it's quite astounding
1: well let's try <laughs> uh, as you yourself indicated it's an extremely rich life uh, long life 90 year uh, long life uh, filled with events uh, turnarounds and so on so schweitzer was born in um, 1875 uh, in a part of uh, Europe that tr- historically switched between Germany and France, uh, Alsace uh, is is the name of that province, uh, where people speak uh, a version of German, a dialect of German. that's very difficult uh, uh, for for somebody like myself, uh, who learned German at school, to understand. Um, so Schweizer's uh, was born in a religious father he uh, in a religious family his father was a, a a lutheran pastor um there were many other clerics in the family and uh, schweitzer was raised uh, actually trilingual uh, because i think that dialect of of alsatian german is a third language so he was equally fluent in german french and that mm-hmm. uh, dialect that that he spoke uh, at home uh, he Wrote uh, in German, almost all of his works, uh, wrote in German. Um was not a particularly good student uh, at school. Uh, what interested uh, him more in his childhood was to learn how to play organ, first piano uh, at the age of five, and then organ basically at the age of nine or, uh, nine or ten. Um, went to study... Um, philosophy and theology at the University of Strasbourg, one of the newly founded universities in Europe, where uh, the lectures were in in German at a time. Uh, lots of young professors, uh, progressive, open-minded, uh, and Schweitzer managed to, uh, to get two degrees fairly quickly uh, in, uh, I mean, PhDs, as we would call them, right, in uh, philosophy and theology. Um, His philosophy, uh, PhD, was on Kant's philosophy of religion, Uh, his theology uh, degree was on um, uh, kind of the miracle of of Jesus' mission and uh, uh, the Last Supper and uh, resurrection and all of these kind of miraculous things that's difficult to explain, uh, if they could be explained uh, in any rational way. And um, at a very young age, uh, the age of 25, Schweitzer uh, was already uh, the head of the uh, theology school in Strasbourg. And uh, while playing organ, giving sermons at the church, uh, just before he turned 30 years old, uh, he decided that his life has been both Extremely fortunate that he was uh, uh, that he was fortunate to to receive so many gifts of nature or of God however you want to put it, and that he was very lucky with his family support and so on, and that from the age of thirty on, he has to dedicate his life to Jesus. Uh, that he has to serve uh, humanity. He has to serve other people that up to the age of 30, he kind of was looking at himself, at his own interest. But from the age of 30, it has to change. So the age of 30, he uh, enrolled into medical school uh, (laughs) to study medicine and specialized in tropical medicine. It took him about eight years to to do that. And in 1913, on Good Friday, with his wife, um, Helena Breslau, Um, He uh, left Europe and and went to Africa uh, to today's Gabon, Um, and he intentionally picked the most (laughs) malaria-infected part of Africa, uh, the equatorial Africa, uh, where there was no other doctor in a radius of 1,000 miles their first hospital was a chicken coop that they uh, sanitized and, and cleared and, and and turned into a primitive hospital. Then the World War One happened, and uh, they were fighting uh, among the French between the French and the Germans, even in Africa. And since Schweitzer had a German passport, the French uh, army uh, arrested him. Uh, first, they prevented him from working. And then the demands of the patient said, well, put him under house arrest, but allow him to practice. <laughs> uh, by the end of by the end of World War One, uh, Schweitzer and his wife were sent to to um to a camp in france uh, on the border between uh, france and, and spain at the bottom of the pyrenees and you can imagine what happens uh, to someone who lives in a tropical climate for several years and and come into a, a mountain winter of europe uh they both very got uh, very sick um, about Schweitzer and his wife, and I think his wife never really uh, recovered for the rest of his his uh, uh, her life. Got tuberculosis, and there were other things. But but uh, miracles happen in life, and and their only daughter was conceived in in a camp and was born pretty much as soon as as they were left free on the same day. And Schweitzer was born the fourteenth of January, uh, nineteen nineteen. She was she was born the only daughter that they had, Reina. Um, after some struggles, um, the hospital virtually went into bankruptcy during the time when Schweitzer was absent at the war. Um, he came to England um, to give lectures at, at Oxford and Cambridge. He went to uh, Sweden, uh, Scandinavia, to play organ, to give lectures, to to get some support for the hospital, and. Um toward the mid of, the, of that uh, third decade of the um, 20th century, he went back to the hospital. And, but they op- reopened, um, they built a new hospital at a different place, better place, where it stayed till the end of Schweitzer's life. Um, so Schweitzer spent about 50 years of his life in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, working in a hospital that was free of any charge. Uh um, many doctors and nurses went to volunteer, like Schweitzer himself. They never got any salary for working in hospital. Most Europeans could not stay longer than two years in that tropical uh, climate without their health being ruined. Schweitzer stayed for all, all these years. Um, in the early 50s, uh, Schweitzer received the Nobel Prize uh, for uh or well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure now for what. I think for peace, uh, because he started, uh, he, he got very engaged uh, in the uh, video, uh, video opposition to nuclear testing and nuclear arms. Bertrand Russell was involved in that. Some other famous people were involved in that. But Schweitzer got the Nobel Prize. Uh, well, he let the Nobel Prize committee uh, know that he can't come to receive the prize until next year. And indeed, that's how he was. He was too busy in the hospital. <laughs> Uh, so he got it in 1954, and by that time, he was really well known uh, pretty much all over the world. In Europe, it was one award after the other. And because he was so vocal and so well known uh, and so vocal against the um, uh, the nuclear testing, uh, the governments of the US, of the UK uh, started plotting uh against him and 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 started uh, a campaign to to kind of uh tarnish his image which they did uh for the most part they accused him of being a a communist uh, and he was apolitical as a person he did not trust any government and was not interested in he did not believe in the institutional solutions to human problems uh but rather in the individual we can talk about it a little bit uh later um, so at any rate, um, uh, uh, there was a considerable damage done to his image. Uh, so I tried to live as best as he could, as he did for decades in Africa, stayed in the hospital, worked there until one month before he died. He was 89 years old. He was still working in a hospital. And so he died at the age of 90. Um, after his death, the hospital was closed. Um, it's It's now a museum. Um, Schweitzer was buried over there, died uh, over there, was buried over there. His um, uh, wife is also uh, buried there. Um, There's a new modern hospital with uh, air-conditioned concrete building uh, that's operating now. Um, uh, Let me also mention this. Um, When Schweitzer got the uh, Nobel Prize, he used the money to open a leprosy village uh, that still exists in Africa, about a mile um, it's all in a jungle. We are talking uh, in uh, the jungle on the bank of, uh, of the Ogave River. So Schweitzer used the money to open a leprosy village because uh, he did not know uh what to do with with uh, countless not countless but many leprosy patients um so there he died in in the jungle in 1965 and his kind of legacy slowly died not entirely but for the most part died with him uh somehow he's been mostly forgotten not entirely uh uh, but but mostly forgotten and ignored, ignored by the intellectuals, uh, more revered, more remembered by general public. Mm-hmm. Um, that's at least my experience in going over the world and giving different lectures in different parts of the world. It's usually the older members uh, of the audience, well, much older than I am, who said, oh, I remember Schweitzer. Oh, I remember that great man. I'm so glad you mentioned him uh, again. So. Uh, so it's a legacy that's that's very kind of thin. Uh, mm-hmm. These works can still be found uh, uh, more on Amazon than in the bookstores. Uh, they're not widely read, uh, but there's a group of enthusiasts, and there's a number of schools and hospitals all over the world that still have his name. That's roughly a biography of a very complex uh, person, gifted for many things, uh, engaged throughout his life in writing in lecturing and organ recording. endlessly active. It's, it seems like he was able to go on five, four to six hours of sleep uh, and, and keep working the next day. Uh, and somehow, miraculously, just, just had incredibly strong will and faith that kept him uh, going and believing that it's important to try to make the world better, primarily by trying to make yourself better.
0: So why do, you, why do you think it is that his intellectual work was sort of forgotten? He's more remembered as a figure. What, is there academic problems with his intellectual work in terms of how we approach that sort of work now? You know, because I know, you know, I know uh, in your paper that you sent me, you you make reference to the fact that his dissertation on Kant, like it's not footnoted. His The work that I've read of his is very, it's probably would be considered by academics now. And I don't mean this as a a slight on Schweitzer, but quite casually written. It's quite formal, um, often not many footnotes or references. These are just ideas which are very alive, but there isn't as much what would be considered now academic rigor. Do you think that's one reason that it's a little bit overlooked?
1: Well, it is one reason. Um, You and I spoke about it before we started recording that the next year uh, there will be a 100th anniversary of of the publication of Schweitzer's most important work the Philosophy of Civilization. Uh, It was published in 1923, uh, part one and part two. In the preface for that work, and and this is a continuation of my answer of why Schweitzer has been neglected, in the preface, he announces that very shortly, uh, within a few years, he'll be able to publish part Uh, three and four, in which he will further develop the philosophy of reverence for life. And that in the fourth volume, he's hoping to to show how reverence for life can be applied to uh, the state, to society at large, to the institutions. Um, One thing that tarnished his a reputation, especially among the academics, is that he never he was never able to finish part three and part four. Uh, there were extended periods of times, uh, from several months to several years, when he worked intensely, especially in volume three. Uh, there are several drafts. Uh, of that volume three that, that have been preserved among his notes. Uh, but none of these drafts uh, is uh, remotely close to, to being a polished work or finished work. Uh, it was published after his death, uh, selected notes, and recently uh, uh, there was some translation of some of these notes, but that's not a published work. So uh, in, in his numerous letters to people, to friends who are wondering, What's happening with your philosophy of civilization, he's announcing that uh, he's almost done within the next six months, and yet these books have never published. And as a philosopher, which he claimed primarily to be, so in his correspondence, he, he claimed that, that he's more of a philosopher than a doctor, than a theologian, than a musician. Um, his legacy should have been built on on these volumes on the philosophy of civilization, yet half of that work is not uh, finished, and and many of his opponents uh, um, used the fact that that Schweitzer could not his c- complete his work uh, as a kind of an indication that either there's something incoherent in in the very idea of reverence for life, or that he himself realized that it's not what he initially uh, believed it to be, that Mm. he just could not bring it to any kind of philosophical uh, completion. And that that by itself is a sufficient indication that that idea is not worth pursuing. If Schweitzer in the course of two decades could not complete it, uh, what's to be expected from the rest of us who may have some admiration for for his idea? I think that's that's what in philosophical circles stands as as the most damning aspect of of his uh, work and and the reason considered usually sufficient for not pursuing that work any further.
0: Mm I feel that's a little unfair. I, th- I can think of there's been a quite a few philosophers who've had these unfinished things. So I feel it's a bit unfair to do that. But I guess to move into his work specifically, you mentioned it there. Um, this Do you see this as the central idea really to all his work, this idea of reverence, reverence for life? And what exactly is that?
1: Well, that's definitely the key. Uh, that's definitely the key, and his himself believed that that is the centerpiece of everything he was doing, of his entire life and and work. Um, the short phrase is is supposed. To, first of all, this short phrase has two kind of two aspects that should be distinguished: positive, negative, and positive. The negative aspect is easier to understand, and it seems more justifiable than the positive one. The negative aspect simply is a reaction to how negligent we have become, not only of animal life and plant life and the environment, but of human life. I remember the Schweitzer um World War I and that just one of many wars that he witnessed later on, obviously he he witnessed and survived World War II. Um so Schweitzer came to believe that human beings, instead of uh developing a civilization that will respect all human life, that will enable all human life to flourish, have come to the point that uh, they, without much guilty consciousness, are able to destroy millions of human beings, to maim millions more, um, uh, to destroy the homes of uh, uh, other millions who have to leave their homes. We still have this problem uh, being refugees and looking for any place in a world that would welcome them or at least give them a chance to continue some existence. So the, the negative aspect of reverence for life. Is, is this kind of almost scream, uh, 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 a kind of a wake-up call, stop killing each other, stop being indifferent to human life being destroyed, whether it's Ukraine in, in our time, whether it's, it's Syria, whether it's anywhere else in the world. Um, show a little bit more respect for human life and for any life whatsoever. Because Schweitzer clearly intended this moral um, uh, creed uh, to apply to any life whatsoever. He he somehow believed that we have to come to, to respect every life, every form of life, in any form, in any manifestation as sacred. So here we touch the positive aspect of the reverence for life, because it seems that Schweitzer was never quite able to convince Um, especially his critics, as to why we should consider every life a sacred, right? Um, One obvious objection would be, why consider the lives of mosquitoes as sacred? Why consider the lives of poisonous snakes as sacred? What's so sacred about flies, for instance, right? Uh, But there, there are deeper problems that we are um, that we are witnessing, and uh, now, uh, not that long ago, I think just a couple of weeks ago, um, it was announced that the eight billion uh, person was born on this planet. So there are eight billion people on this planet, which is significantly more than than Van lived. and And the question is, how far can it go? Uh, for how many people do we have resources to, to sustain? Um, not just sheer existence, but some kind of a meaningful, decent human existence. And if we keep protecting every life, human and animal and plant, uh, who's going to feed us? How are we going to support each other? Where are we going to find uh, enough resources um, from natural to artificially made uh, to sustain that kind of existence? Uh, so, um, and th- this is a serious problem. So, how how are we going to all survive uh, and when the number of of human beings is is going to continue to multiply uh i don't know what the estimation is for let's say um 2050 but uh the way we go we can multiply we can double the uh 8 billion people on this planet is is there enough room for us all? Is there enough room for uh, uh is there enough resources for us all? Uh, so so a lot of people who are concerned about these these questions, and these are legitimate questions, these are not naive questions, um they they just couldn't find any at least intuitive appeal in the ethics that 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 tells us that we should have reverence for all life. Hmm. Uh, so um did was Schweitzer able to to provide sufficient answer to these questions? I think the answer is more no than yes, uh, despite my admiration for Schweitzer. Um, Let let me just give a few examples that are are combining practice and theory, because Schweitzer was a practical man, as we said, and for him, practice was not separated from theory. Uh, Schweitzer knew that as a doctor when he's trying to save a human being that has a viral disease or some kind of infection, that in the process of saving a human being, he has to kill millions of bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you ha- you're practicing reverence for life by saving one life at the expense of other lives. Uh, so Schweitzer realized, realize, even as a practical man, it is impossible to save all lives. It is impossible to preserve all life. And it's quite possible that despite this realization that he was not able quite to articulate that inside, that practical wisdom that he as a doctor had to practice virtually every day. Um, so there's got to be a way, and maybe it's up to us who admire his philosophy and his ethics, to find a way to articulate it, that reverence for life does not necessarily mean saving every life, preserving every life. But then the question, the burden of of argument is on us, what does it mean? And why is it called reverence for all life? Uh, Why not respecting, let's say, the rights of every human being, like something more minimalistic and and less ambitious, let's say the doctrine of of the human rights, for instance, right, or protection Mm -hmm. of animals and so on, uh, avoiding unnecessary killing, avoiding unnecessary exploitation of human beings and animals and so on. Um, Schweitzer try... Uh, obviously was uh, smart enough to understand where the burden of his ethics of reverence for life is. And that is to show, to demonstrate the positive side of the ethics of reverence for life. What are we gaining by, by this positive ethics of uh, positive side of the ethics of reverence for life Um, in, in, couple of articles um, and, and the book there that we mentioned, The Philosophy of Civilization, he tried to define good and evil in a following fairly simple way and fairly intuitive way. He says, evil consists in destroying or obstructing life, and good consists in defending, preserving, and promoting, developing life. Okay. Another way to 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 put this positive side, maybe by 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 some help from Aristotle, is to is to um, say that's why I was hoping that every life, at least every human life, will have a chance to flourish. Every life will have an equal opportunity to to develop itself, so that each one of us gets a chance. Right? Uh, perhaps it's unrealistic and utopian to expect more but when we look at the pictures from somalia or or uh, any different part of the world when we see those hungry kids without parents orphany or orphanages full of kids we we want to believe that every child deserves a chance uh we can't replace the parents and and that uh, parental love and care uh, that we hope uh, exists in every home. But, but you want to give those kids an opportunity to maybe have a foster family or to go to school, get some education, get proper nourishment. If they're gifted for music or science or sports, to get the chance to practice. Uh, um, so it, how the, the problem is that it's very difficult to formulate those kind of humane expectations in terms of a philosophy, in terms of an ethical theory, because we are working at the intuitive level and we are working at the level of conscience, human conscience. Uh, So so the formula or uh, formula-like sentence, reverence for life, uh, does seem to give us a focus but on the other hand it it kind of covers up just how complex are the issues that we are dealing with and how difficult it is even for us um, adults in privileged countries and privileged society to discover and, and and to put ourselves in a situation to flourish and imagine the war-torn countries and, and the countries with famine and 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 all these other natural disasters that that uh, happen there, dysfunctional corrupt societies. What does it mean to flourish in a society like that? What is it what does it mean to flourish at a place like that? Uh, um, so it, it, on the one hand, Schweitzer offered a the theory, but on 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 another level, all he offered just the fragment that are capturing our basic humane elementary intuitions.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I mean, it it does combine everything. You have this philosophy, theology, medicine, and then in that way, that practical sense, it combines them all with this, in a way, an emphasis on the. The medicine, but to draw or the practical work of what, how can we actually enact this? But to draw in, I guess, what the foundation might be because these these big questions of of life really, I think Schweitzer always is bringing them back to morality and ethics. And in a sense, do you see that foundation as his own understanding of a Christian morality? The foundation of it all has to be this Christian morality.
1: Yeah, um, he himself was very aware of that. And and at at numerous places, he he would say that reverence for life is nothing else but universally applied the ethics of love of Jesus. Uh, But when he was a little bit more cautious, when he wanted to be a little bit more precise, um, he would normally give three sources of his reverence for life. Uh, The first of them and that's his order of uh, of mentioning them. The first of them would be the ethics of virtue that we usually associate with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And what appealed to him in the ethics of virtue is that it's not just the ethics of doing this right or doing that wrong, but rather the ethics that focuses on full development of the character, uh, something that stimulates us to become excellent as human beings, fully developed, fully mature human beings. Uh, So uh, so Schweitzer definitely saw this as one of his inspirations. This is the positive side of the reverence for life, allowing each one of us to flourish as fully developed human being. Uh, The second source of his inspiration that was very important to him uh, and that he was very much annoyed at most Christians don't respect was the Stoic idea, or or what he believed was a fundamentally original Stoic idea that all human beings are brothers. Uh, He believed that the Stoics uh, formulated this idea before the Christians, and that they took it very seriously, that the number of Stoic thinkers uh, took that idea very, very seriously. And one of the things that the idea that, in in direction in which he wanted to develop it, is that there's so much pain and suffering in a world. and And this is what he was seeing, not just in Africa, but when he was coming to Europe, torn by war, uh, that, maybe the first duty that we have is to become brotherhood in sharing our pain, brotherhood in in suffering and compassion, that that maybe our first duty is to be sensitive to the pain of others and and see what we can do about that pain. And he thought that the stoicism, surprisingly, he himself, uh, uh, so steeped in the Christian tradition, he he kind of connected that with, with stoicism and what he normally associated with Jesus and with Paul, who was also very important to him, was what he calls the ethics of love. Uh, Love each other. So more than just being brothers, but actively loving, actively supporting each other. Uh, So he, in, in his kind of Philosophical moods. Uh, he would usually cite all three of those uh, of those um, references, and oftentimes uh, when he was speaking in Christian churches, when people would just say, "Oh, but this is nothing else but the ethics of of love uh, of Jesus," he would say that love itself is not enough, or especially if it's nothing else but. Uh, a charitable donation of money for a good cause without moving your little finger to do anything else for your brothers and sisters who are suffering somewhere else. I mean, look what he did. He could have preached that kind of ethics by staying in Strasbourg and being a professor and, and, and famous theologian, but he left all of that to go to Africa to work with the poorest of the poor, as he said, uh, the most deprived people of that time. And, and uh, so ethics for him is not just the right way of thinking but but a proper way of life uh, a way of life dedicated to trying to eradicate some injustices and trying to bring something positive into the pain and suffering of 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 the un- less privileged and unfortunate uh millions who who exist all over all over the earth so he picked africa but when he was asked by many young people at different places, what should I do? Uh, Schweitzer would say, well, find your own Lambarene. Lambarene is the place in Africa where he built his hospital, where he went to. He said, find your own place where you can help. Don't look at me. It's not about imitation, uh, just like it's not about imitating Jesus or the Buddha or anybody. Find what you can do based on who you are and based on where you are and based on what is happening in the world. Uh, each of us have that ethical responsibility and sense of gift to find where and how we can contribute to the well-being of the world or to at least eliminating some of the pain and suffering that exists in the world.
0: Mm. And this and this would be why he understood the Christianity of his day, or Christianity in general of, of his day, as quite cloistered, as quite uh, ironically, I guess, cloistered in this. They cut themselves off in this ethical way and really they should be yeah, they should be getting out into the world, which which sort of brings me to a question of, you know, you, you, you do... There's a few thinkers I can think of who try to bring things back to this simple way of, well, what are you actually going to do? Get out into the world. You know, these are these are ideas that could very quickly become too simplistic, you know, love one another, be brothers to one another, do what you can to help out. And so what does Schweitzer sort of bring in to, for instance, to... to to work out why, you know, the, the the big question really, I guess, of Christians and of this form of ethics, of ethics, which is so glaringly obvious to so many people, you know, love one another, be a brother to people, go help, is the question of, well, why don't we do this? Why aren't we collectively not doing this? And I guess the, the bigger question would be that spirit which would cause us and, and, and allow us to enter into this ethics, what has caused that to decay? Because I think that seems to be, the big idea for Schweitzer is well, if we should be doing this, these these ethical, virtuous acts, something has caused us to fall the other way and be decaying beings.
1: That's exactly the heart of the matter. That's exactly what Schweitzer perceived as the heart of the matter. And that's why he wrote that book on the philosophy of civilization. Uh he understood civilization or Kultur was the German word. Some of us and, and some people like his contemporary Oswald Spengler want to make a sharp distinction between culture and civilization. Schweitzer wanted to treat them as, as more or less synonymous. Um, so what is civilization for Schweitzer and where did it, where did it go wrong? How did we, how did we start it? Uh, well, Schweitzer right believed, let's say that that 18th century was one of the peaks of civilization. That 18, the time of the Enlightenment, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. The time of rationality, the time of faith in reason, uh, was one of the peaks of civilization. So obviously, at that time, he believed the civilization is was indeed progressing, was going in a good direction. And then something happened in at the end of the 18th and and more so in the 19th century. That kind of turned the civilization in a radically wrong direction. Um, So to try to explain that, and and I'm glad that you mentioned the word spirit because it's it's a key element of of Schweitzer's kind of uh, explanation of what went wrong. Um, Schweitzer believe that the civilization has two aspects. Every civilization has two aspects. One is roughly a uh, material aspect and the other spiritual aspect. Uh, the material aspect includes nature, the natural resources, but it also includes, especially in our time but in Switzerland too, the whole technological aspect of uh and when we say the material civilization, we we are more likely maybe even to think Think about technology and and that part of it. Uh, so uh, so there's this this material dash technological part and there's a spiritual part. Uh, interestingly enough, Schweitzer did not think that. There's animosity between these two parts. So he was not like many Christians who believe that we have to suppress the impulses of the body to develop the spirit. Uh, Schweitzer believed that the spirit and the body should work together, that the material side of civilization and the spiritual side of civilization should work together, and that the only healthy civilization is the one in which they work together. What happened in our civilization, according to Schweitzer, was that in the course of the 19th century, and then in the beginning of the 20th, we continued pretty much, and throughout the 20th century and to our time, uh, the same trend continued. We started focusing far more on the material side of the civilization, Uh, not just in terms of money, but in terms of technology and what technology can do to us and the exploitation of nature and so on. So Schweizer believed that um, at the end of the 19th century, there was a huge disproportion in the development of the material side of the civilization and the spiritual side of the civilization, that we were so amazed by the technological and scientific progress that was made So the success of technology, uh, to seemingly so many problems of human existence. Uh, for instance, far more sophisticated medications, uh, technology that allowed healing of diseases that were previously... Uh, um, incurable, that we have not just turned toward the material side of civilization and kind of expected that that the miracle or the solution to all of our uh, civilizational and human problems come from that side, but we have also collectively, systematically started neglecting the spiritual part of of our being and the spiritual part of the civilization. Uh, Less and less people started believing in God, less and less people started believing that there's a presence in God in the world and in each one of us, and that this may be the best part in us, and that ultimately that is what requires. Our, our final focus and civilization and and uh, concentration that we are above all spiritual beings, which does not necessarily involve uh, just philosophy, but art in any form, development of science, uh, appreciation of the spiritual traditions of other cultures, and and so on. And so suddenly we have. Not only turn against religion, but we have started even thinking uh, thinking about people as machines. We have started depersonalizing the entire world and every aspect of the world that early in the earlier times we would normally consider it as the spiritual aspect of humanity or the spiritual aspect of the world. Nowadays, you sound foolish unless you're Roger Scruton if you talk about the um, the world soul uh most of us uh relatively minor philosophers like myself would not be excused if I use in a lecture uh a phrase like that what is the world soul? what are you talking about there's no such thing uh we we are to the point that we are even denying that an individual has a soul right even a human being uh, there's no such thing as as soul or the soul. we we have we have abandoned this useless idea a long time ago. Why are you bringing this back? I'm just saying that to illustrate where Schweitzer believed was the source of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, Schweitzer, Sh- Sh- Schweitzer was a very religious man, but also in a way, even his religiousness was different from what you normally would think about when you say a religious, uh, religious man. One of the ways in which Schweitzer annoyed uh, um, both the uh, proponents of science or, or, or modern development is, is to let people know Schweitzer is, uh, Jesus is the role model for all of us. Uh, <laughs> there is God, and God is present in everything we do, right? Um, on the other hand, he annoyed the religious people because he denied that Jesus was the son of God or, or God himself. He believed that Jesus was an exemplary human being, Um, that Jesus is a role model uh, and that we should learn from Jesus But Jesus was no God. Jesus was just a human being um, who struggled, who had some deep insights, and and who who realized that the real change in life is the change of mind and heart, not the change of laws, not the change of institutions, and that this is exactly what we should do. This is the aspect of Jesus which we should follow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not by dressing like Jesus or letting our hair grow like Jesus, but by opening our minds and hearts first of all uh for the for the unfortunate lives and and pain and suffering of those underprivileged unprivileged and deprived and so on um so schweitzer kind of was creating enemies in both camps he was standing in between somewhat like socrates if you want right on the socrates on the one hand annoyed the uh traditional Athenians because uh he said well maybe the sophists are after something because they question why do we believe in justice why do we believe in virtue uh, why do we believe in wisdom and what's so good about them let's try to understand that rather than to repeat like parrots yes wisdom and piety and and and, and moderation and so on on the other hand Socrates criticized the sophists but The way you're questioning things, you assume that everything's relative, that everything's a convention, that there are no absolute values. So kind of Schweitzer was in a similar position. He annoyed the people who were scientifically inclined, uh, who kind of abandoned their faith or religion if they had any ever. Uh, by by saying there is more to the world than the material part of it, material aspect that's measured by science and exploited by science and technology. But then he annoyed the religious part of the population by saying, no, Jesus was not God. Uh, and, and, And Schweitzer believed that by talking about the immaculate conception or the rebirth of Jesus, we just distract ourselves from what was important about Jesus, not the miraculous birth or the resurrection, but what Jesus did as a human being, how he was going around and talking to people and trying to help people and trying to open their eyes for the most fundamental values of, of human life. Um, so Schweitzer himself put him Schweitzer put himself in a very inevitable position, that he was being attacked by both sides, that he was not getting support, either by the proponents of science or common sense, or by, by the religious people who 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 were offended by, by his treatment of, of, of Jesus, especially.
0: In what sense then, I guess, did he I guess this is my own bias coming through, but in what sense then, you know, did he st- then begin to understand the resurrection did did, i mean of course you've said that that he, he didn't believe christ was the son of god did he literally believe that or did was it more this idea that like putting that forward as as an idea just so we can begin to focus on what we can actually do right what is it we're actually imitating so as you said try not to focus too much on the resurrection or or these these huge divine events because ultimately that's not what we can do as humans or did he did he literally um, believe that Christ was just uh, sort of a, a human, a solely human prophet?
1: A solely human prophet. Wow. A solely human prophet, and 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 he believed that uh, those of little faith, to use the expression by Paul, uh, that those of little faith need. Uh Somebody to reassure them that uh that Jesus's mother, Mary, was still a virgin, even though she conceived the child or that that Jesus was so mighty and powerful, and what made him so special is that he and he alone could come back from the grave and so on mm-hmm. he He thought that this is distracting us from what Jesus was really about, and what he thought what Jesus was really about was the belief in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he believed that Jesus was kind of a Jewish prophet that also kind of outgrow the Jewish tradition. And, and so he kept the elements of the Jewish tradition, a Messiah of a kind, the coming of the kingdom. Uh, Schweitzer believed that Jesus was absolutely convinced that the kingdom is coming inevitably and very soon right mm-hmm. which created the mm-hmm. problem for uh, his interpreters from Paul on mm-hmm. um and and but but what he believed uh, uh Schweitzer believed about Jesus is that Jesus came to the realization that the Kingdom of God is not the material transformation of reality, that this is not going to be a paradise on earth in a sense of some kind of, uh, I don't know, Las Vegas or whatever, <laughs> Hawaii or, or something of that kind. It, it's not the material transformation that will happen, but the spiritual transformation that will happen. The Kingdom of God is, 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 uh, uh, the life in which we truly genuinely see each other as brothers and sisters, in which we truly and genuinely can be moved by uh, by the problems of others more than our own self-interest and our own egotistical desires and so on. Uh, this is the kingdom of God that's right to believe Jesus was talking about. This is the kingdom of God that, that he was kind of trying to implement in Africa to the extent that it is possible. Come and 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 if I can help you, I will heal you. Uh, come and and um, y- you know I don't know how much you know, and maybe it's good to say uh, for the audience that Schweizer's hospital was unlike anything we think uh, about when we when when the word hospital is being mentioned. Uh, so this hospital is placed in the heart of the jungle, <laughs> but on a, on a, on a shore of a river. So basically, the only way that that you could approach the hospital was by boat or canoe or, or through the river. And oftentimes, if you're sick, you cannot uh, operate that canoe for three days or four days or whatever to come to, Schwe- to Schweitzer's hospital. So what happened is that the, the cousins and relatives and often the whole family would bring a patient to hospital. And not only that the whole family would come, but they would bring their goat and their cat and their pig and then whatever animal... Because what would happen to those animals if they leave them? So, so you can imagine what the hospital looked like in, in which there were pigs roaming around and goats roaming around and all the cousins and relatives are there, um, staying with those patients for days. Uh, so Schweizer tried to, uh, organize the life and had to organize the life for, and he had to feed them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not only did he have to get the medications for, uh, for the doctors and nurses and the patients, but he had to, uh, provide food for everybody, right? Uh, including the families. So, which what Schwarzer was trying to do is to make everybody who was capable of some work work. Uh, One thing that was needed was to transport the hospitals from the boats to the hospital. You know, uh, the river had the dry season and, and the wet season, the rainy season, and the difference was consider considerable. So in a dry season, you had to carry people a 100, 100, 200 yards to to the hospital, even though the hospital was right there. In a rainy season, you were basically just there in front of the in front of the door. So somebody had to do that. When the food arrived, it arrived by the river. Somebody had to carry it. When the medications arrived, uh, somebody had to go up on up on banana trees and, and get the bananas down. Somebody had to work in a garden. Somebody had to uh, do the laundry. Somebody had to cook uh, for all these people, wash the dishes. So, Schweitzer's hospital was a community uh, Schweitzer was probably the first person that we can think of who uh, actively introduced recycling in hospital. The resources in a jungle are extremely limited. Whatever could be recycled was recycled many times, many more times than they would be recycled in our hospitals. Um, so, uh, what Schweitzer wanted to create was community of well-being, community of caring the the hospital was about the healing uh many of these people that came to the hospital lived with superstitions uh, i don't know if you're aware and then maybe our our uh, listeners would not believe that but Schweitzer even accepted cannibals into his hospital. Even they were coming to his hospital. So you can imagine uh, the, the people of these different tribes um, were separated by the jungle, so they did not understand each other's dialogues. They treated each other as strangers. right? So Schweitzer had a problem to convince people to carry the patients from different tribes uh, to, to the hospital. They would not understand why would they have, have to help anybody of a different tribe. It was purely a tribal mentality like us uh, who are ready to care for our family and maybe for our country, but not for another country and not for people with different skin color or strangers or whatever. So Schweitzer considered his job as is, is as healing in, in a far broader sense than medical healing, healing people of their superstition, healing people of their prejudices, uh, bringing people to the point that they can truly see others and even animals as the creatures of God, as, 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 as creatures that are hungry and that can be hurt and that can help you if you treat them well and so on so it was an enormously complex almost utopian project of a kind that that that, that he uh that he uh, in, envisioned over there in in hospital by the time let's just mention to give our listeners the idea of how large the hospital grew from that initial chicken coop by the time schweitzer died there were 800 beds in hospital uh, so it became quite a large hospital, even for our city standards, that you can have 800 patients over uh, there, or 800, pe- 800 beds in a hospital. So it became quite an enterprise, a complex enterprise. I think by the time Schweitzer died, there were um, uh, about 15 doctors and about 70 or 80 nurses over there. So you can imagine you had to run all of that complex society, uh, nurses and doctors coming from different parts of the world.
0: Wow. Wow. It's, a, it's an impressive legacy. It's sort of sad that it's been overshadowed, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, is there, is there anything about Schweitzer's work that you feel is key uh, that we haven't, we haven't touched upon? Because so far we've given a pretty good Um, look, because it all overlaps into this very practical vision. Is there anything key that you think we should add in?
1: Well, let me mention something that uh, um, Schweitzer kind of uh, partially, uh, the work that he partially did complete and partially did not. Um, Interestingly enough, Uh, as if what he was doing was not enough in terms of philosophy and and theology and and medicine and music. Uh, By the way, uh, Schweitzer was not only an excellent organ player, He could even fix organs and build organs. And he even wrote a booklet about it, how to to maintain and fix organs, how to build organs. He studied extensively the difference between French organs, German organs, and so on. Uh, So he was a genius of a kind uh, and with a variety of gifts that that the world perhaps didn't have since Leonardo da Vinci. It was that kind of variety of of gifts. Uh, So among many things that he did, Schweitzer took it upon himself to study the religious of religions of the world. <laughs> uh, as if, as if the Christian tradition and the Judeo-Christian tradition is not large enough and massive enough, uh, he, he was fully determined that he's going to understand the major, uh, tradition, religious traditions of the world. So already in like 1932, if I'm not wrong, he, he, uh, published a, a major book about Indian thought and Indian development covering everything from the Rig Vedas, from the Vedas, uh, to the present day, including Gandhi and Tagore uh, never been to India, never spoke any of the local languages uh, uh, Pali for instance, the language in which most of the original Buddhist texts uh, were composed he wrote a book about India uh, uh he studied very extensively and was always fascinated by Chinese philosophy um studied Buddhism uh. Had extremely high opinion about Tzu, or Mencius, as we call him. Uh, like Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu, Confucius. Respected them as among the uh, greatest spiritual leaders of humanity of of all kind. Uh, wrote extensively about Chinese philosophy in in, in his notes. Uh, studied Buddhism. Uh, tried to study as many original Buddhist texts. Studied the Upanishads, uh, Hinduism, and um, so it, it, it's just amazing the the scope of, of the, uh, of, of his curiosity and intellectual interest that, that he, that he even could conceive possibly of trying to learn it all, of trying to cover it all. Um, in his, in second part of the ethics and uh, philosophy of civilization, it's called ethics and philosophy, he virtually gives uh, a summary of the entire history of Western ethics—it's uh, it, unbelievable that 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 you could have that kind of an ambition. I mean, a professor sitting in Oxford and Cambridge with the best library in the world and all the resources can dream of some Coplandon or somebody like that. Uh, Jaspers in his old age could do that. But imagine you are in a jungle and you're working full time, which for him meant 10 to 12 hours a day in the hospital. And on the top of it, you 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 want to study and write a book, not just for your curiosity, uh, to study the uh imagine the vastness of the Indian tradition. And 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 he wanted to study it all. The Chinese tradition—we're talking about almost three thousand years of 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 the written tradition of the sacred text. He he wanted to master it all. He wanted to to learn it all. So even even if he cannot always be pleased with with the outcome of his thought and and agree that that he did not develop his ethics of reverence uh, of life to to be to the level. Where it could be philosophically really tested and and maybe accepted and further developed, we have to be amazed at the ambition and at the uh, uh, interest of of that human being for whom nothing strange, nothing human was strange, who who wanted to know everything that pertains to human beings and and to human traditions and human cultures and so on, a person who who would even accept cannibals into his hospital, a person who during the World War II accepted both French and, and German soldiers into his hospitals and put them intentionally in the same room, uh, the wounded soldiers and the wounded officers, but but banned any presence of weapons uh, on the grounds of the hospital. So wounded soldiers were welcome of any nationality, but not not if they were carrying arms. So treating a hospital like a church right you don't you don't bring weapons to a sacred place uh, so it, it's a truly kind of amazing legacy and in, in especially in our time when we are becoming more skeptical cynical depressed about the human prospects, as if there was a man, Schweitzer, who by the strength of his will, by the strength of his determination and his sacrifice, wanted to turn the whole civilization around, or or at least wanted to give us a reason to think about what do we live for? How do we spend 50 years of our adult life, and is there not something more that we could do uh, than what we are already doing. Uh, For him, 24 hours was an opportunity to do so many things versus most of us who are just... Human, as we would say, <laughs> just tired at the end of eight-hour work or ten-hour work or so on. and need some entertainment. and need some uh, football match or 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 good movie to entertain ourselves. No, he would he would still practice piano at the late hour. He would he would try to uh, read more about Indian uh, philosophy or Chinese philosophy. Um, endless effort, endless determination. To become as human as possible, to master anything that's human, and to try to develop it further. Hmm. This is, I think, the source of my admiration. I think I, I've been able to convey... Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I I would ask you or, or our listeners, how do you not admire a man like that? You may disagree with his philosophy. You may think that it's not developed properly, or that, that it's indeed... A uh, pity that he did not finish the philosophy of civilization that he promised. And, and maybe it would never have become a very important philosophy anyway. But, but that kind of effort, that kind of faith, that kind of dedication, that kind of optimism that human beings are capable of so much more than what we accomplish, it's truly astonishing. And, and it deserves, I think, all the respect that we could give it.
0: Mm. Where would you advise people to begin with reading his work?
1: Um one good way would be to to uh, read his uh, autobiography Out of My Life and Thought. Uh it it gives us the basic picture of a child uh, uh in a in a village uh, enjoying his happy childhood but already starting to realize when there's a wandering jew who's a tradesman uh uh passing through the village uh, when the village kids make fun of that man or hit him uh, because he's old poor and defenseless and and schweitz is already feeling guilty that he's one of the boys doing that from realizing that Uh, Yeah, uh, killing birds with a slingshot is a lot of fun, but why exactly are we doing it? Uh, What exactly is the point of that? Not to talk about the more sophisticated safari in Africa and things like that, right? Um, So somebody who seemed to be very privileged and lucky, and yet somehow uh, that World and life of privilege does not make him complacent, does not make him simply enjoy what he has and ignore the rest of the world, but quite the contrary, a uh, uh awakens a sense of guilt. Why do I have so much more than others? Why am I so much, uh, so much more privileged than others? And is that fair? And, and is, is that how it should be? be and and could there be something that we that we distribute our gifts and share more of what we have whether it's it's material possession or knowledge or skills uh I find that truly remarkable and that already I think that kind of attitude if if it finds a positive reception in a reader it would prompt the reader to to read more to want to know more
0: mm-hmm. and you say there is a Conference or uh, going on in Cambridge next year?
1: Yeah, we are planning a conference next October. So we're talking about uh, 2023, uh, a conference that would be uh, mostly dedicated to the um, uh, philosophy of civilization, uh, an analysis of it, uh, uh, examining why it emerged in a context of the uh, beginning of the 20th century when there were people like Oswald Spengler when there was Georg Simmel whose former uh, professor who published the philosophy of money, 600 and, f- and 500 pages, a uh, book on the philosophy of money, money being the symbol of our material civilization. And there were lots of people who told Stoy who started questioning whether we are going in a good direction, and if not, what should be the direction that we should take. Uh, that being one aspect of the conference. The second, um, uh, Schweitzer's um understanding of the history of ethics and, and whether he understood or misunderstood uh, the ethical thought the ethical tradition of the West the third examining Schweitzer's own contribution or attempted contribution of ethics for reverence for life and the fourth aspect of the conference. We'll deal with the the environmental uh, aspect of Schweitzer's reverence for life. Uh, I don't know if you or our audience would be familiar with the name of um, uh, Rachel Carlson, uh, who wrote in, I think in 1962, the book, The Silent Spring yes uh this is really the beginning of the environmentalist movement and rachel uh, rachel carson dedicated this book to schweitzer she claimed that schweitzer inspired her and in this book she is the raising the voice against the uh, spreading um use of pesticides uncritical use of pesticides in 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 western uh, cultures to produce more to make more money uh without thinking about what kind of damage is being done to uh, to the environment. Uh, so so there will be these four aspects of Schweitzer that the conference uh, will be focused on.
0: Sounds like a very exciting conference. Um, yeah, unless there's anything else you'd like to, to add, I think that's a good place to finish up.
1: Well, uh, maybe uh, we cannot always practice reverence for life, uh, but we definitely should be more sensitive about needlessly harming others or being indifferent to uh, the misfortune of others. And if you could just raise our awareness a little bit more than where it is right now, uh, I think Schweitzer would smile in his grave and think all that effort was worth it.
0: Frederik Cicciovacki, thanks very much.
1: Thank you.